John 19. We are just going to jump on in and I'm going to make a few notes as I read through this and then um, some longer thoughts afterwards based on the text. So we'll just jump right in. As you remember, if you remember from Jeff teaching, gosh, a month ago or more, um, we're coming right up to the death of Christ. Uh, Jesus has been arrested and brought before Caiaphas and Pilate um, so far, uh, some in chapter 18. And so then we come to chapter 19, and it reads this in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, or had him whipped, or scourged. Verse 2, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Purple would be the color of royalty, they say. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. This is the first place in the book of John where that word is kind of tossed out there is here's what we want you to do, I believe. Um, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, we'll talk a bit about it in a little bit, but crucifixion, as most of you know, it's, it's the cruelest form of punishment known in the day that the Romans had. And it was only applied for those criminals uh, who had the most severe crimes. Okay, so uh, it wasn't super common, but for those who were really bad guys, they would crucify. The Jews themselves uh, didn't, by their law, have the ability to actually crucify someone. You can remember from, um, as we've talked before, they did have the death penalty for blasphemy and some other things that you can read about in Leviticus 24. Um, but they that was the only like capital punishment that they could do. So although they don't have the authority to crucify him, and Pilate does, um, Pilate doesn't think it's justified that he would crucify him. And he's kind of taunting them when he says, crucify him yourselves. I mean, he knows that technically they're not supposed to do that themselves, but um, he's like, any more than I'm, I should crucify him because he doesn't seem to be guilty to Pilate. Verse 7, the Jews answered him. I'll stop in the middle for some questions too in a little bit if you have any. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, here it is, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, that Jesus is the son of God, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Stopping there for just a moment, uh, 
there's some debate. I think it was Jeff actually brought it up weeks ago, but this could be talking about Caiaphas, who has the greater sin, or Judas, um, whoever the one who delivered Jesus over, like verse 11 says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. But the the main point here, uh, even if I'm not sure if he's talking Caiaphas or Judas, the main point I believe would be that Pilate, Jesus is telling Pilate, you're not in control of this decision like you think you are. Jesus is in control or God gave him any authority that he has. Now, Pilate is still responsible. He still has a lesser sin, you could say, right? If Caiaphas or Judas has the greater sin, he still has sin and he has responsibility. But Jesus is trying to say, you're not in the driver's seat. You don't have as much power as you think you do, Pilate. But God is giving you um, and all of these people the authority to carry these things out. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not a friend of Caesar. You're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha, uh, which is where Roman officials would sit to make their official judicial decisions. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Verse 16, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, or in Latin, Calvaria, where we get the word Calvary, um, which nowhere, by the way, does it say that this was a hill, the hill of Calvary we've kind of written songs about, but um, it's it's just Calvary. Um, maybe the where today the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, you know, there's different places they wonder where that might be. But so Jesus bears his own cross to this place. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, which would be a common thing to do to inscribe above the one being crucified, whatever their offense was, their crime. Verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. 
This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's Psalm 22, 18. It's the same psalm where we read the psalmist uh, say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another one of Jesus' phrases on the cross. So the soldiers did these things, verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, as we've said, this is most likely referring to John, the guy who wrote the book here, the author. She's, uh, he saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. By the way, what does this make the relationship between Jesus and that disciple whom he loved? Probably John. That, that would make them brothers. So in dying, we see not only Jesus caring for his mom, which is really cool and uh, has been a meaningful passage to me and guided some of my life, um, but he's also making John his brother. And I don't really hear other people talking about this, but I think it's significant because isn't that what Jesus is doing on the cross? He's making us his brothers and sisters co-heirs with him Uh, verse 28 and after this jesus knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill the scripture i thirst a jar full of sour wine stood there probably for the soldiers so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth when jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Um, Many of you know this, but just for those who don't, the Jews... um, they weren't supposed to leave bodies of criminals hanging overnight because it would kind of desecrate the land. Um, so they asked that these criminals' deaths be expediated, right? And breaking their legs would accomplish that because if you picture somebody on the cross, we know that one of the ways that they would die would be from. Uh, suffocating, right? They couldn't get the air that they need because with their arms stretched out and being kind of hung by that, you'd have to kind of pull yourself up or push up with your legs more so that you could get air in your lungs and then you'd kind of sink back down. And then when you need air again, you have to kind of push up again. So you're pushing up with your legs. Um, That was uh, really not, and they have that little board you know, underneath their feet that their feet are on, that seems like, oh, that's kind of nice that it's there. But no, that's just prolonging their death because it's giving them the opportunity to push up so that they can continue to breathe. Um, So it's just part of the the torture of the cross. Um, So but if they break their legs, they can't push up anymore. And so they die more quickly. So that's what the Jews are asking for, that this would happen so that they could take the bodies down. 
So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Very interesting verse right there in the middle of this. And I think it's pretty clearly John just giving his eyewitness report. Like, I saw Jesus dead on the cross, stabbed with a spear. And, um, you know, in the next chapter, John's going to make this absurd claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And so here he just wants you to know he was dead. Like, wants to be certain, I think, this is, this is what I saw with my own eyes. Verse 36, it says, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's probably a reference to the Passover lamb uh, passage in Exodus 12, where the Passover lamb wasn't supposed to have any broken bones before they would slaughter him and eat him and all of that. Again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Um, and that's from Zechariah. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Just think about that. Like that's a, that's heavy. <laughs> He's bringing a ton of spices. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. All right. So they're like, we got to get this guy buried before sundown, because that's the beginning of the Sabbath when we're not supposed to do any work um, or probably have this dead body lying around. All right. Just quickly, first, just a couple of things I, I want to point out to make sure you see this real apparent in the text. But um, number one, that everything is happening according to how God determined. Right. We read several times in this and the last chapter and throughout the whole book. This was to fulfill the scripture. Here's why this happened. It was to fulfill the scripture, even almost like a shotgun in, in 19 or, or it, it, it increases its pace. It says it a couple of times early on and then near the end when it's like these took place in verse 36 that, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him who they pierced. It's like it keeps coming faster and faster. Scripture said, scripture said, scripture said. Um, and so we see God is in complete control here. Even all of these ironic statements from Pilate, who keeps calling Jesus king when, yes, he actually is king. It's like he's kind of prophetically saying those things, just like Caiaphas was a few chapters ago. Remember, he's like, hey, it'd be better that one man die instead of the whole nation die. Um, it's like, yeah, they're speaking kind of truths um, that they don't even know that they're speaking. And it's, it's because God is actually the one in charge here. 
um, like Jesus tells Pilate, hey, you think you have the authority, but it's been given to you from above. Um, right down to Jesus, how it says he died, it says he, he gave up his spirit. And from what I understand, that's not a, a typical way to talk about death. That's not like some Hebraism um, a way of saying he died. No, that's, that's a very specific kind of unique way to say it. Almost like he gave up his spirit, meaning this was Jesus decided the time to do it. It wasn't that he was just overtaken by death all of a sudden, but it was voluntary. This is something that he did. Um, in John chapter 10, he had said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. And I think he's showing that right down to his last breath. Um, so, so just one thing that's apparent here is that what God did in Christ here at the crucifixion was not because he couldn't help it or because even he had to, but because he chose to do it and he chose for it to go down just like this to fulfill the scripture, to accomplish his purposes, right? Um, God is, is not out of control here, though it definitely appears to everybody in the situation present, right? Um, secondly, it's really apparent here, and I'm not sure I understand the full significance of this, but um, it's clear that Jesus was being rejected and specifically by his own people. If you notice, Pilate's trying really hard, it seems like, to get out of killing Jesus. Like over and over in 18 and 19, he's saying like, hey, he's innocent. I don't find any fault in this guy. And even in, in the flogging, um, it, it seems, even if you read Luke's account, it seems like he's doing some of that to say, okay, isn't this enough? Like, we beat him up real good, and can you can you just let him go? Like Pilate's trying to get out of this thing, but the Jews are rejecting the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah. Um, they're asking him to for him to be killed. They're saying, "Hey, don't write King of the Jews above him. He's not the King of the Jews." Um, and they're even saying these crazy things like, "We have no king but Caesar," right? They should be saying, "We have no king but." Yahweh God at least um, but it's just this <coughs> this blatant rejection um, stunning rejection and it goes right along with a lot of what John has been saying through the whole book right down to chapter 1 verse 11 um, that said he came to his own and his own people did not receive him so why is John so intent on making us know in this section especially that God determined that these things would happen exactly like they happened and that Jesus was rejected by his own people. I think if we look at the book as a whole and we remember John's purpose statement that we've brought up a number of times uh, where John says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Um, I think John is saying to whoever is listening to this, Jesus is your Messiah, King. He is the Son of God. Everything was planned by God here for your redemption, so don't reject him. Remember, that's what John wants people to do is believe because of his recounting of what happened in the life of Jesus. So he writes, uh, again, in chapter 1, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who 
did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So John is saying, hey, <clears throat> I saw it with my own eyes. Don't reject him. Look at all these people that are rejecting him. Don't do that. You can see how it's um, the gospel is sometimes called an evangelistic gospel. John in particular, he's calling for belief and he's saying these things for the people to believe. Don't reject him. And these things are all going down exactly as God had planned. Okay. Um, there's, there's two kind of main things that maybe aren't quite so apparent, but I think are even maybe more important emphases that, that John is making here. So I want to tell you two emphases in this chapter, and then one thing that is not emphasized that sometimes gets emphasized. Okay. Um, so the first emphasis And I'm going to move Izzy so that she isn't making snoring sounds. Hey, girl, come on now. There we go. Tori, that's my dog, not my wife. Um, the emphasis, the first emphasis <clears throat> that I want to point out that John is making, I believe, is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Now, there is a lot of um, smart people you can read and listen to debating on if Jesus died the same day that all of the Passover lambs were being slaughtered, or if he died the day after, okay? Um, it would seem, and, and maybe in your mind you think, well, obviously it's one or the other, um, but you get um, what on the surface seem to be conflicting things from the different gospel writers. From Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, it seems that they ate the Passover feast with Jesus the night before the crucifixion in the upper room, right? I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. It's our, the Last Supper, right? That was the Passover meal, right? Um, John seems to be tying very closely the connection between Jesus's death and the Passover lamb's death, deaths. Um, and he's making it sound like he's kind of building it up almost like Jesus was dying on the cross, even at the very time that the lambs were being slain in the temple, um, which is the way they would have been doing it in the day. Um, I'm not sure, and I don't think it's of critical importance for us tonight, uh, which it is, but I am certain that John wants us to identify Jesus as the Passover lamb. Um, you'll remember what John the Baptist said at the beginning of this gospel, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here in chapter 19, we have a decently clear reference to Exodus 12, 46, which connects Jesus to all of the previous Passover lambs, when he quotes that verse, not one of his bones will be broken. Well, that's just like the Israelites were instructed of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, 46. So John wants to make a point that Jesus is the final or consummate Passover lamb. And like all Passover lambs before him, you don't have to die because the lamb did is the point here. 
And that Jesus as the Passover lamb is consistent with what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Peter in 1 Peter 1 says that you are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, just like the Old Testament Passover lamb. Um, so, and John himself in the Revelation, remember he sees a lamb that was slain um, throughout the book of Revelation. So the emphasis that John brings out kind of in the background, but I think it's important is that Jesus is the Passover lamb and he's taking the place of those who would otherwise die. Um, so Jesus is the Passover lamb. Now I'll give you a quick <coughs> um, tidbit uh, on substitutionary atonement, as we call it, the sacrifice that Jesus was making. Um, and this, I mean, you could do a whole sermon on this and this would be super impactful. Um, uh, but this just isn't where I was going. But but I think John is definitely doing this. So check this out. Um, you remember the analogies, the water analogies throughout the book of John? So the woman at the well is is one of those. And to the woman at the well, Jesus says of himself, he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is this unlimited water source. And then we talked about in detail in chapter seven, the Feast of Booths. And in that time, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Okay, so check this out. So Jesus is the source of living water at whose expense at his own expense and john couldn't make it any clearer than by recounting this one of the final statements of jesus before his death i thirst do you get that jesus the source of living water empties himself and becomes thirsty so rivers of living water could flow out of us in eternal life. I think that's what John's doing with the I thirst. Um, there's not a lot of statements of Jesus. There's seven right on the cross throughout the Gospels. And to, to notate this one, um, I thirst is just, I, it, it's, it's an insignificant sentence, but I think it's it's so significant because of the water kind of theme that John's bringing through the whole book and how at this point, Jesus has emptied himself so much that even he, the living water, thirsts. I mean, spiritually speaking or, or um, kind of metaphorically, very interesting. Um, Secondly, so, so Jesus is the Passover lamb. I want you guys to see that. And then secondly, and this one's very apparent, but that Jesus is the king of the Jews. So you can't miss this as, as you read it, <clears throat> though nobody is acknowledging Jesus as the king of the Jews. Um, we see, or, or Pilate kind of is, but he's kind of doing it in a kind of a jerk way, or I think he's just trying to get the, the Jews stirred up. But um, we see all of this really um, ironic 
uh, language because us as the readers, we know Jesus is the king of the Jews and not only the Jews, but of the whole world. And so we saw in chapter 18, a few weeks ago, um, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers and Pilate says, so you are a king. And he's real kind of set on that king idea. And then of course, in this chapter this week, you read he he's, has this crown of thorns. He has this royal kind of purple robe and they're saying, mocking him, hail king of the Jews. And then Pilate brings him out before the Jews and he says, behold your king. And he says, shall I crucify your king? And then of course the inscription on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And we get it proclaimed even in three different languages. So to the entire world, he's the king of the Jews. And the Jews are like, no, no, he's not our king. And, but Pilate kind of prophetically says, what I've written, I've written. Like it's there, that's what it is. And then one last kind of kingly analogy, and maybe there's others, but um, when Nicodemus brings the 75 pounds of spices that's a lot of spices and to um embalm someone with spices was was typical as, as it even says this was the the custom of the jews but um to use that amount that was an excessive amount and come to find out that excessive amount of spices was generally only used to bury royalty so this is nicodemus maybe now out in public and not by night um to some extent saying maybe remembering the conversation he had with jesus about entering the kingdom of god and he's saying this this is this is the king or this is a king so there's that emphasis jesus is king of the jews jesus is passover lamb and he's king of the jews Now, what is not emphasized? Um, look at verse one of chapter 19. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Okay. Now flogging is un almost unimaginable to us. He'd, Jesus would be stripped, he'd be tied to a post, whipped, probably with you know, leather cords of, that had bones and shards of metal and stuff in it. Not, I mean, if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, I don't think it's, that's not too far-fetched. That's probably very similar um, from what I understand to what would happen. And the flogging would actually oftentimes, depending on what type of flogging it was, would actually tear their skin open and even sometimes expose their bones. And it's just this horrific scene, right? Um, and maybe, I think it actually happened to twice to Jesus, there was based on kind of piecing the different gospel accounts together. Once would be a payment for the crime, a lesser flogging where it's like, okay, we beat him up, now we'll let him go. But then there's another uh, level of flogging. There's actually three levels, but the third would be used before crucifixion to kind of prepare somebody for crucifixion um, so that they wouldn't be hanging there for days on end, but it would, they'd die a little bit quicker if they were beat up beforehand. So all that to say, this, it's a horrific thought, this flogging, uh, let alone the crucifixion. Um, but here in John, only one sentence, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. 
And then he moves on to the next things. And then there's the crucifixion. Look at verse 16. Jesus says he, uh, I'm sorry, John says he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, went out bearing his own cross to the place uh, of a skull where an Aramaic is called Golgotha. Verse 18, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. That's the, the description of the crucifixion process that we get. Now, crucifixion, as I said, was the worst kind of torturous death that these brutal Romans could come up with in the day. And after being beaten or flogged, you'd carry some or all of your cross and you'd have nails driven through your arms and you'd be hoisted up vertically. Um, like I said, with this tiny little ledge to stand on to prolong your death, um, not to mention you're probably hanging there naked and everybody around you is just watching you die and cursing you. And it's, it is horrific. But again, John commits no more than a couple sentences to that crucifixion or, or give it maybe a, a paragraph or two if we're kind of looking at the extended part here. And it's similar in the other gospel accounts. The torture and the pain doesn't drag on in the narrative. Okay, we can read here in a few minutes what we've turned into a two plus hour movie, right? That's highlighting the suffering. Now, the suffering took place for more than two hours, but why do we do this? Um, one, and, and this is, I understand this, to, in the day, they don't need, the readers of this don't need an explanation of flogging and crucifixion like I've given you a little bit of, because they, they were familiar with it, they'd seen it um, around, right? Um, but John could have made a bigger deal about the pain that Jesus felt and his emotions in it, um, as he's mentioned Jesus' emotions some other times in the book, he could have mentioned the crown of thorns cut deep into his forehead and the flogging tore open his skin and hanging on the cross, he was gasping for breath. Like he could have really drawn that out. If John was this author that just really wanted to make you feel sorry for the pain that Jesus was going through, he could have laid it on more. But for some reason, that doesn't interest John. I don't think he's interested in making us feel sorry for Jesus. What John wants us to realize is even more significant than the physical pain that Jesus was suffering. So just listen to me on this. <clears throat> John's emphasis isn't so much on one man suffering for us so that we will feel bad and obey him, but his emphasis is on one divine and innocent king being sacrificed like an animal to make those who have rejected him his brothers.
C.F. Morgan says it may be a challengeable opinion, though I agree with this opinion. He says, but I think the church of God has suffered more than it knows by pictures of the crucifying of Jesus. And sometimes by very honest and well-intentioned sermons trying to describe the matter on the physical side. He says, I'm not denying the tragedy and the pain of it physically. Lord, help us not to deny that. But the physical suffering, he said, of Jesus was nothing compared to the deeper fact of that cross. Okay, so we haven't begun and John doesn't even begin to talk about the, the weight of the wrath of God um, that Jesus was bearing. But here's just what I what I want us to see in this is that <clears throat> while the sacrifice of Jesus is no less I don't want to belittle what Jesus is going through here. None of us have ever experienced this, experienced this, will ever experience this. Um, but while the sacrifice of Jesus is no less than this horrific torture that we read and endured by this man for your sake, it's even much more than that. Paul even says, perhaps for, for a good person, one would even dare to die, right? Like that's happened before. There have been people who have given their lives for other people, right? Sometimes. But Paul says in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ meaning Messiah or King, that guy died for us the rejecting people. So it's not only that a man did this for you, but that Christ, the King, the Son of God did this for you and for a world who in every language was rejecting him so that those who believe could become his family. And nowhere in the history of the world has this happened outside of Jesus Christ. I want to bring your attention back to chapter 13, the foot washing chapter we talked about weeks ago. Um, I had mentioned at the time that that's a foreshadowing of the cross. And with foot washing, remember, it's that's something that only sometimes maybe a Gentile slave would do for you would be wash your feet. Maybe a, a brother would do it to kind of symbolically show his love for you. But we said with foot washing, never a master to a slave, never, never a rabbi to a student, never somebody of higher honor to somebody of lower honor except Jesus did that with his foot washing. And I, I mentioned it had never been recorded in history of somebody in an honorable position washing the feet of somebody in a dishonorable or a less honorable position. It's the same thing with the cross that it foreshadowed. Perhaps people have died for the sake of other good people, right? Even gruesome, torturous deaths, but never in the history of the world has someone with this authority, God, King, laid down his life and for such brazen subjects who are saying, we have no king but Caesar. I think that's what John is, is trying to emphasize here. 
it's not just the physical death of a man and how much pain he felt, it, though that would be significant enough. But I, I think this matters to us. <laughs> um, I think it's important when we're sharing the gospel, like John is sharing, um, because people, they may be impressed with the pain and suffering that Jesus endured on the cross for us. Um, I think we should be very, very moved by that. I think it's a good exercise and emotionally valuable to watch the passion of the Christ or, or to consider other depictions of Jesus being crucified. But we have to remember that it isn't just Jesus, the man suffering human pain because he loves us. It is Christ, the God King being sacrificed as an animal, as a lamb for his rejectors because he loves us. Um, I'll end here just by saying or repeating, this is driven by his love for us, by God's love for us. And I'll show you how I know that that's the case. When Jesus makes his final remark on the cross, he says, uh, at least here in John, he says, it is finished, right? Talking about the wine, but obviously there's some more significance to it than that. Um, that word finished means not only that a, a substance is used up like the wine, he's done with it, but it, it also is used that word finished to as accomplished. There's a work that's been finished or accomplished. Okay. So in John 17, four, Jesus had said, father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's the same uh, basic word there. So he's accomplished his work of sacrifice, you could say. Um, but just as significantly as that, <clears throat> this it is finished statement ends a section of John that I believe started in chapter 13, verse one. Uh, this is, it's basically the section of Jesus, his betrayal and arrest and trial and crucifixion and death. And that section, um, if you look at chapter 13, verse one, uh, it begins with kind of an odd verse. Again, it's not a typical way of maybe saying something, even in the original language. And John says this of Jesus in verse one. He says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And we talked about how that to the end kind of means to the fullest, or he loved them to the greatest extent, or he loved them to the finish. That's the, um, the noun that corresponds to the verb Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. So here at the final breath of Jesus, we see that finish. What was being finished or accomplished or filled out to the greatest extent? Jesus' love for his disciples. Because greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So all of this, this King, God, yes, suffering and dying for the sake of those who were rejecting him, that we might become brothers. And why? Because he loves us.
to the fullest extent to death on a cross. And so praise the Lord and thank you, Lord.